0: This episode is a good one, but not exactly suitable for little ears. So if you are listening in the car with kids in the backseat, you may want to see this one for when you have earbuds in. If you don't know what priapism is, you're about to find out. And if you aren't quite ready to explain erections to your child, then I'd turn me off now. But if you would love to learn about what to do when an erection becomes a medical emergency, then stay tuned for this fun and oh-so-informative episode on priapism. there. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. Hi everyone. Welcome to the podcast today. I'm so excited to share with you my friend and colleague, Walker. Welcome to Rapid Response RN.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Sarah. It's an absolute honor.
0: I'm really excited to talk with you about this very interesting topic today. Before we dive in, I just want to do a quick, like how I met Walker and for you to get to know who he is as a nurse. So um, I didn't know Walker from anywhere and I took an ACLS class and he was there. I was like, man. I like this guy. He's friendly. He's positive. He's optimistic. He really loves being a nurse. He has like good things to say about his colleagues. Like this guy's great. And so without knowing him from anywhere at all, like I don't know if he's a good nurse or not. <laughs> I was like, Hey, have you ever thought about rapid response nursing? And he basically said, well, maybe why? <laughs> I was like, I, would you like to come shadow and like, see what it's like? And so one thing led to another. He's chatting with us the very next week. And now we've been working together for a year. He's, he's awesome. To me, the rapid response role, clinical aptitude is just as important as personality. Fortunately for me, Walker is not only a great human being and fun to talk to and personable and cares about people. He also really knows his stuff. So thank God that worked out. <laughs> but um, Walker's a really great rapid response nurse. And so Walker, would you just share with my listeners like your nursing journey, how long have you been a nurse? Where did you start? What led you to rapid response nursing in the first place?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I I genuinely had no idea that rapid response was a thing for the longest time. And whenever I started off as a a nurse, funny story was I was a baker. I made donuts and pies and bread and stuff like that for years while I was in college. Knew nothing about the medical field. And then I got into nursing school Still wasn't even sure if I wanted to be a nurse. I did a rotation in the NICU and fell in love with taking care of really sick babies. Well, I applied for the NICU. They said I was going to have to start delivering babies or help be in the process with that. And I said, that's not my game. <laughs> so I was like, you know what? I'll apply for the adult ICU. <laughs> Little did I know, I didn't even know where the unit was and never stepped foot in the ICU in my entire life. And I was, like, you know what? Sure, I can do it. And I went and applied, did really well in my interview, and I fell in love with working in intensive care. It was a massive learning curve for me, but it helped me grow as a person. I actually met my wife on the unit as well.
0: Nice score! You scored big on that one.
1: <laughs> it was a, it was a big score. It made me as a person better, a clinician better. And then I went and worked at a different facility for a little while and learned how to work in a lung transplant ICU. And let me tell you, I met so many incredible doctors, patients, nurses as well. And then one day I went to an ACLS training and then I found Shadow Boss, as I I call uh, rapid response nurse Sarah she talked to me about this rapid response gig and I shattered her for a day. I was only able to do like four hours, ended up doing like a full eight hours. And it is my absolute dream job. I love making a difference every day, getting experienced something new all the time.
0: Awesome, awesome. So you started as a baker, knowing nothing about definitely not critical care, (laughs) scored a job in critical care because you have such a great personality and everyone loves you, got a wife, (laughs) <laughs> met her wiping sure. butt <laughs> that's a whole other story <laughs> oh, yeah. and, then, and then ended up as our response nurse and you really are stellar i wanted to add in there too what you didn't say is that you worked in the lung transplant icu at the height of covid when you guys had several patients on ecmo and caring for patients that got lung transplants because of covid so that was a I'm sure a very challenging time for you and your your nursing career, but I'm glad that I got to meet you and bring on our team. It's been almost exactly a year, Walker, that we've been working together, and I feel like I've known you forever.
1: It's definitely flowing by.
0: 30 hours a week with you, so we've got to spend a lot of time together. All right. So for this podcast, we are here today to talk about priapism. Before we uh, go about talking through the patient that you cared for, I want to take a minute just to kind of break down just the basic pathophys so people can kind of imagine, but not imagine too much um, exactly what we're talking about. So priapism is the word for a prolonged erection that lasts, sorry, erection of the penis, to be clear, prolonged erection of the penis that lasts more than four hours. We'll talk about the multiple reasons that can cause priapism, but it actually is a medical emergency because it can lead to necrosis and loss of penile tissue and great sadness for the patient. So uh, it needs to be treated with a heightened sense of urgency. As far as like, a little history about the word itself, Priapus is the god of fertility. Use caution when Googling Priapus, the god of fertility, because you will get some very interesting photos of a very well-endowed <laughs> Greek god. But that is the root of this diagnosis. The word Priapism comes from Priapus, the god of fertility.
1: Key word root. <laughs>
0: yes. So, Walker, can you tell us about the patient that you cared for? Um, how did you get involved with this care?
1: So, yes, I, I got contacted people that tell us, you know, patients are being upgraded. So as a rapid response nurse, I want to make sure that all patients that are being upgraded, want to make sure that they're stable and uh, able to be moved to a higher level of care efficiently. And so, I got a text saying that this patient was being upgraded. And I went and reviewed their chart to make sure it was an appropriate upgrade. And whenever I was reviewing the chart, I noticed that this patient had a potassium 6.4. So whenever I was looking at it and his creatinine was six, his potassium, like I said, was 6.4. His B.O.N. was through the roof. All of his labs were like crazy. This guy was screaming, you know, classic sign of AKI. But I was like, what did he come in for? You know, and, and then I looked and I saw this guy had fibrosis. And I was Oh my gosh. So I wanted to go check out this guy. Whenever I wanted to go check out this guy, he had excruciating pain. Couldn't even sit. The dude was just on all fours, just crying. I felt so bad for him. And we got into his, uh, IR to get the emergent dialysis, cath place because he needed emergent dialysis. And whenever we got there, got the dialysis going. He was significantly better and more stable because, you know, I was really worried about the potassium being at 6.4.
0: Yeah. So, what was his chief complaint? Like, why did he come to the hospital?
1: His chief complaint was he had an erection that had lasted for eight days. Wow. Yeah. Eight days.
0: That sounds really terrible. No wonder he was on all fours. And then, so whenever you walked in the room, he's up on all fours from the pain from the priapism?
1: Oh, yeah. Whenever he was in the ER, the, Attempted to relieve the erection, but because the erection had been uh, prolonged for so long that this guy's erection wasn't able to be reduced. So he was still even in the hospital, you know, day seven, day eight with an erection. And uh, this guy's pain, I honestly could not imagine the amount of pain that that man was going through. Was on all fours just in chronic pain, needing relief so bad.
0: So he had some other comorbidities, right, that would lead to the priapism not being able to be, the big word is detumescence, to relieve the erection. What, what were those? What was his medical history?
1: So he had uh, a sickle cell trait. He didn't actually have sickle cell, but whenever I was looking at his history, he had type 1 diabetes, high blood pressure, Chronic renal insufficiency. He didn't actually have like chronic kidney disease. He just had a renal insufficiency and pulmonary hypertension. This guy, he's he's fairly young, so yeah. these comorbidities were quite unique for his uh, uh, his age.
0: Okay, so you got called not just because of the pain he's experiencing, but because he was going to renal failure and needed to be emergently taken to get a dialysis catheter and get dialyzed. So it was a lot more medical stuff going on. So Walker, whenever you arrive at the rapid response, you see this guy on all fours and you know a little bit of his history about his AKI, like what are your concerns initially as a rapid response nurse?
1: Whenever I saw that his potassium was 6.4, like that was my number one concern because I did not want him to go into any kind of arrhythmia and us eventually have to like possibly code this patient because he's a fairly young patient. So that's my number one priority right out of the bat, trying to get Either he needs emergent dialysis, or we got to do uh, quick interventions with IV medications to lower this uh, potassium. So, whenever I knew that he was going to go to IR and get that emergent dialysis uh, cath placed, I uh, made it my number one priority: get this guy to IR to get that dialysis cath placed. So, we need to do bedside dialysis. It's all now.
0: Gotcha. And can you explain a little bit how how did he get renal failure in the first place?
1: So there's a couple of different types of renal failure. You know, you have pre-renal injury, inter-renal injury, and post-renal injury. Post-renal injury is typically a little more rare because it's usually caused by obstructions. And when there's an obstruction in the urethra or in the bladder or something that's causing uh, a lack of excretion of urine through the urethra, uh, you can have a buildup through the renal tubules into the kidneys, and that can cause a buildup of creatinine and your serum and stuff like that can build up and you can have damaged kidneys because of that. And because you're not releasing all those toxins, electrolytes can get really out of whack. And that's how you can have that high creatinine, high phosphorus and arrhythmias.
0: Gotcha. So his priapism led to renal failure, which led to an electrolyte malady, which needed to be treated emergently. Correct. And then once we can get the worst case scenario dealt with or addressed, then we can address the priapism, which it sounds like they already tried to address it, but were unsuccessful with the non-surgical intervention. So, what do they end up doing to help with that?
1: So after after we did the emergent dialysis, like you said, it took him to emergent surgery and made that their number one priority to relieve his priapism. So they
0: had to like manually relieve relieve the clots. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, poor guy. And I'm sure as a male, too, you just want extra compassion for this patient and what he was going through, not just like physically how painful it is, but just socially how uncomfortable that must be uh, to be in a room with people and have such a painful erection with everyone. So can you kind of break down like the pathophysiology, different causes for priapism, why people would get it in the first place?
1: Absolutely. You know, Whenever I was studying for my CCRN and, and my CEN, I didn't really know much about it myself, you know. And then, you know, me and you share stories in the office all the time together that uh, whenever this case came up, I was like, I found it so intriguing. So there are two different types of uh, patho for priorism. You have low flow prism, which is basically compartment syndrome of the penis. Uh, the pain is from the ischemia, which starts developing at a four-hour mark. Rule of thumb, whenever I was studying for my CEN and uh, any other tests, you start feeling pain from any kind of lack of blood flow at four hours.
0: Yeah, so that's why all of the erectile dysfunction commercial, like the drugs for ED, they had a little disclaimer at the end. If you experience an erection that lasts longer than four hours, please contact your physician because at the four-hour mark is when like cells start to die. <laughs>
1: Hey, like I said, all that studying paid off, you know. <laughs> but no, you, you have decreased venous outflow, which results in increased cavernosal pressure. And then whenever the cavernosal pressure exceeds arterial pressure, ischemia develops. The causes are sickle cell disease, leukemia, intra ejection, anticoagulation, uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, there's some pharmaceuticals are, that can cause uh, low flow pribrism. It are SSRIs, sedative hypnotics, erectile dysfunction medications, and illicit drugs like cocaine or ecstasy. And that's your low flow You know, your other option is high flow which is less common. Excess arterial inflow resulting in priprism often painless, and the common causes are atrial arterial laceration and spinal trauma. Gotcha.
0: You'll see this a lot if you work in the ER. When you have spinal injury patients, they'll come in with uh, an erection and they weren't doing anything sexual prior to the injury. It's just the, the spinal injury causes the priapism to occur. So those are like the the basics of the pathophys of priapism, like the reasons why they can't achieve detumescence. I wanted to make it clear that not every time is this someone who was experiencing sexual arousal, and then they couldn't get that to subside. Sometimes it happens for a lot, for other reasons, like sickle cell disease, they have leukemia, it's something they were doing that created this. So just wanted to take the stigma off whenever you're asking patients questions and they're, they're telling you like, I was just in my bed. I just woke up like this. They're not lying to you. That actually does happen. So before I talk about the treatment options, I just wanted to share the story with my listeners. I know i am totally before Walker, but About my first encounter with a patient with priapism, so uh, let's just go down memory lane for a minute. I graduated nursing school when I was 19, and in my final semester of nursing school, I was assigned to the ER for like my practicum or preceptorship, whatever you call it. So I had like a whole month working alongside an ER nurse, taking care of ER patients, like a whole team by myself. Again, so I'm 19 years old. I was at the time a virgin. And my only experience with penises was little baby penises from changing diapers when I was like a babysitter. And then old man penises when I was changing diapers of my patients. But never in my entire life of my 19 years had I ever seen an erect penis. And so I'm very young and naive and precious. And my first day of my rotation in the ER... I went to the charge nurse, I was like, Hey, I really want to get good at starting IV. So if you know anyone that needs an IV, just let me know I'm happy to go start it. She's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Go ahead, honey. Uh, room 23. So not knowing anything. I bebop on in there. Hi there. My name is Sarah. Adam. And I noticed this guy has a huge tent in the bed. I mean, it is so obvious how large his erection is. <laughs> and I'm little on me trying to act normal and professional and not look in that direction, but also super curious what in the world is going on with this guy. So I'm like, all right, so I'm going to be starting an IV on you and uh, trying to be cool. So I'm like setting my supplies up. And as I'm talking to him, the urology team comes in to greet him. And so I'm like taking my time with setting up so I can kind of hear the story and see what's going on. So they pull back the covers, Walker, this thing was so big. It was like the size of my forearm and like almost the length of my forearm. Like it was, it was so large and angry looking and like beet red, almost purple. Like it was, it was scarily huge, like so, so big. And I thought to myself, oh my God, is that what they turn into? Whenever they're erect? that is so scary. (laughs) but I'm trying to be cool, right? It's my first day. I don't want to like (laughs) make anyone think that I'm as young as I really am. Young and naive. And so then the patient's telling the urology team about what happened. And he had gone on his honeymoon to the islands. We live in Florida. And he had done some self-injecting of medications to create a really uh, amazing time with his spouse. And the erection just didn't go down. And so after four hours, he decided, well, I need to do something about it, but I'm not going to the hospital here in this third world country. I'm going to take a flight back to my hometown in Florida. So the guy catches a flight with his giant erection and makes it back to where we live to go to the ER there because that's the providers that he trusted. So he walked into the ER. At this point, it had been 13 hours since his erection started. Jeez. And so you can imagine... One, how painful it is. Now he has blood clots in there. Think about patients with a DVT. How swollen and red their legs get. That's exactly what happened with his penis as well. It was so swollen, like the skin looked like it could have just burst. It was so so big. So I'm hearing all this, like, oh my gosh, this is is this ER nursing? Like this is some crazy stuff. <laughs> And then they proceed to do the procedure. Now this time I already got in the IV, but I just continued to like find things to do in the room, like cleaning up and tidying so that I can continue to watch. Like, what are they about to do now? This is 20 years ago. So the technique has shifted a little bit since then. So I'll tell you what they did then. And then in a minute, we'll go through what you, what you do now. They busted out two large needles with big old, like Toomey syringes on the end of it, like, like, the big 60 ml syringes oh
1: my god and they
0: like numbed the tip of his glands penis and then injected the uh, and put in these giant syringes on each side of his penis at like 10 o'clock and two o'clock and then just started like pushing fluid in and like pulling fluid out and there's like little blood clots coming out and a little bit of blood but just it's not super effective and i'm just watching this guy in agony as a whole group of doctors like urologists are all trying like looking at his penis and trying to get the the blood it just it looks so terrible anyways they too were unsuccessful because it had been so very long he also had to go to surgery to get the clots manually removed out of his penis poor guy and poor me, I was quite traumatized by this. <laughs> so I go to my preceptor.
1: I'm traumatized. Just hearing about it. Oh my God.
0: So I go to my preceptor afterwards and I was like, Hey, um, Allison, that patient in room 23. She's like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that. I said, hey, so I just had um, a question just because I'm not very um experienced yet. And I, I was just curious, is that how anatomically, like, is that how they always look whenever whenever they're erect? And she just burst out laughing. And she's like, Sarah, if a man ever comes at you with a penis looking like that, you should run the other way. That I think would harm you. That is that is not how they look. That is very scary. That's pathological what was happening with him. Don't worry. They're not usually that big. And I was like, oh, oh, thank goodness, thank goodness. <laughs> so that was my first encounter with a patient with fibrosis. I've had several since then, literally just several, like maybe like seven or eight patients I've cared for that had priapism and the treatment has kind of evolved a little bit over the years. So let me just talk through what we do now. So I did some research because there's stuff that the research says that I've never actually done in real life. They say you can try warm compresses, but I'm thinking, I think the guy might've tried that already, but okay, warm compresses. Let's see if that improves blood flow with a little vasodilation, try to get things to, keep, to drain out. The other option is to give pseudoephedrine PO. It kind of works in theory because um, pseudoephedrine is similar to phenylephrine, so you can give that PO like 60 to 120 milligrams PO, but there's really not much evidence to support using that. So I say, why, why waste the time? You can also give tributaline. Um, that is a beta-2 agonist that also increases venous outflow. You can give it orally, subcutaneously. You can repeat the dose if it doesn't have much effect, but again, it also has unproven uh, treatment benefits. So, I've never actually given it to a patient. We just jump straight to the intervention that we know is going to work. And then for patients who have priapism from sickle cell anemia, you can actually do an exchange transfusion to help kind of thin things out and allow for more flow out of the penis for all the sickle cells that are clumped up together. All right. So let's talk about invasive management. Now, you would take like a butterfly needle and you don't have to put it on both sides and it doesn't go on the glands penis, it goes like on the shaft. And so you would put the needle in again at two o'clock or 10 o'clock, either one, because all the all that tissue communicates together. And you would start by aspirating out a small amount of blood just to decompress a little bit and make some space for the phenylephrine injection that you're gonna give. phenylephrine is a sympathomimetic, which means it mimics the sympathetic nervous system and that induces contraction of the cavernous smooth muscles, like in the penis, and allows for improved fetus outflow or drainage. So pull a little bit out, inject a little phenylephrine in there, and hopefully that will decompress or achieve detumescence for the patient. So the dose of phenylephrine, you want to give 200 to 500 micrograms. You're diluting it in like one ml of normal saline. You can do a couple different Injections like every 20 minutes or so, up to three attempts. You can really use several drugs to achieve those. Like you could do epinephrine or ephedrine, but phenylephrine is usually preferred just because it has less hemodynamic effect on the patient. But there is still risk for hemodynamic changes. So this patient should be on the monitor. You're obviously checking blood pressures frequently because we're giving a medication that changes the blood pressure. But so that guy was unsuccessful. Everyone I've seen since then has been successful. They pulled a little bit of blood out. They put the phenylephrine in, things kind of started to drain, they continue to kind of aspirate manually and decompress that part of the penis and then the erection goes away, or they achieve detumescence. So there's a lot of things to think about when caring for these patients, not just like the pathophysiology behind it, but also as nurses, we're thinking about maintaining like dignity for the patient and remembering their humanity and having compassion for what they're going through. Like, yes, it may be something to kind of joke about. It's a funny story to tell your colleagues, but when we're in the room with that patient, we are their nurse and their advocate first and foremost. So Walker, if you were sharing this story with say a new nurse, like what what would you say are your three biggest takeaways that you would want, that you remember, that you would want them to remember?
1: That's a really good point. I mean, you know, you want to make sure, number one, patient dignity is at that highest priority because... No matter what this person is still a person and they came to us for help so we need to make sure we respect that and their most stressful and their most vulnerable moment so if you see someone just kind of like like if someone's not mature enough to take care of this patient you just you respectfully say hey listen you know let's find someone else that can let's make sure this patient feels comfortable so we want to make sure that people feel comfortable to come to the hospital and know that healthcare workers will keep their dignity at the utmost priority number two would be knowing the pathophysiology you know that there's a couple different ways that fibroism can happen you know due to a neurological injury or an arterial injury versus uh possibly medically induced with medications drugs could be just due to the fact that they have sickle cell so just don't make assumptions just treat the patient with the utmost uh, respect. And then the treatment plans, we work as fast as we can to get those uh, blood clots out and get that erection down. So it's not that hard of a situation on the guy.
0: gonna <laughs> help yourself, huh? We had to throw a pun in there at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so the treatment obviously is, is scary for anyone, but especially when the needle's coming at you, It's gotta be really scary, but to know that that is how we're going to achieve and restore blood flow and that this is a medical emergency. It's not just funny. Like this is actually really serious. And so if you're a triage nurse and you have a patient who comes in with an erection greater than four hours, this is a priority patient because they actually can lose blood flow. And then they have ischemia and their cell death. And then they get, I mean, there's a lot of complications that come from this, including post renal injury. But yeah, this patient is made a priority. It's not just like a, ha look what he did. Like, no, this is something we take really seriously as medical providers. So Walker, thank you so much for sharing this patient story on the podcast. I hope that it is informative and inspiring just to hear uh, who you are and how much you care about the patients, but also to learn a little pathophys about a unique problem that you might encounter as a nurse. So thank you so much. Next time I have you on, we're talking about sepsis. <laughs> Backstory, hey, guys. Get- I call Walker. <laughs> walker sepsis ranger because he just has this knack for finding patients who are going septic and getting interventions early that's like his jam so um you will hear walker back to the podcast at some point so thank you so much walker thank you guys before you go i just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode you would probably like my course too my one hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how i approach emergencies if you would like to learn to think assess and respond quickly when your patient is crashing then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN.